Um, the first question is, um, it's an apology for an out of context question. When I visited Ramana Ashram recently, I was searching for Sri Sadhu Om Samadhi and couldn't find it within the ashram premises. Later, I found the Samadhi 400 meters away from Sri Ramana Ashram. Is there any reason why Sadhu Om's body was not interred in Sri Ramana's ashram? Um, everything happens according to Bhagavan's will. Um, he was... Uh, he had been living outside the ashram for more than 20 years before, uh, before he passed away. For um, During Bhagavan's lifetime, he was he was with Bhagavan only for the last four years. And at that time, like most other sadhus, he was living in Palakotu. Then um, after Bhagavan, uh, for some time he was living, a, he was living in Tanjore, and he was also living a parabrajika life as a sannyasi, wandering from place to place. Um, finally, in 1955, he came to settle in Tiruvannamalai, and at that time he stayed in Yashram from about 1955 up till sometime in the early 1960s, maybe 62, 63, 64. Then he was living outside. Um, so because he was living outside, um, he actually, um, <clears throat> I, I was uh, living in the same compound as him, and I built a small house there, and it was in my house that he left the body. So we interred him just in front of my house. Um, so that's how it happened. Ultimately, everything happens according to Bhagavan's will. Uh, the next question is, could you kindly explain the concepts of free will, destiny, and doership uh, in Ramana? Um, doership is the nature of ego, because as ego, we, we identify ourselves with the instruments of action, namely mind, speech, and body. So uh, whatever is done by mind, speech, or body is experienced by us as I am doing this. Um, so do, we cannot be free of doership without uh, destroying this false identification. In other words, without destroying ego. So ego is always uh, always experiences itself as I am a doer. <clears throat> and as Bhagavan says in verse thirty-eight of Uludanapadu, if we are a doer of actions, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. But when one knows oneself by investigating who is the doer. Doership will drop off and all the three karmas will come to an end. And this is liberation, which is eternal. That is, liberation is our own real nature. It is, uh, it's only for ego that there seems to be bondage. But if we investigate this ego, ego will uh, subside and dissolve back into its source. That's why Bhagavan says, when one knows oneself by investigating who is the doer of action, doership will cease. Because when we know ourselves, ego is destroyed and therefore doership ceases. And that reveals our eternal state, which, the state of liberation, which is eternal. Um, so the three karmas that Bhagavan refers to there, when he says all three karmas will come to an end, those three karmas are agamya, sanchitta, and prarabdha. <clears throat> agamya are the actions we do under the sway of our vasanas. Our vasanas are, um, what, are what constitute our will. But that's, the will is the totality of all our vasanas. Vasanas are the 
inclinations. So they are the they are what gives rise to likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, um, hopes, fears, and so on. Um, so all these um, passions, these desire and fear and so on, in their seed form are what are called vasanas. Um, so whatever we do under the sway of our vasanas, those are actions we're doing according to our will. And those, act, those are the actions that bear fruit. So those actions are called agamya. But we cannot experience the fruit of whatever agamya we do in this lifetime. We don't experience the fruit in this lifetime. Though it may seem to us, I do such and such an action, and therefore I experience such and such a result. Actually, the results we experience are not the results of the actions we do in this lifetime. They're results of actions we've done in the pre in earlier lifetimes. Um, so the actions we do under the sway of our vasanas are called agamya. Um, the, the fruit of those actions gets stored in what is called sanchitta. Sanchitta means a heap or pile. So that is the store of all the fruits of our past actions that have not yet begun to bear fruit. And from that sanchitta, which is a huge pile, because in every lifetime we tend to, I mean, we, because we have desire, so much desire, we accumulate more fruit than we're able to experience the fruit. So the, the sanchitta is an ever-growing pile. So from that huge pile, God selects what are those fruit that will be most favorable to, for us to experience in this lifetime. The fruit that are expect, uh, selected for us to experience in each lifetime are what are called prarabdha. So these three, the agamya, sanchitta, and prarabdha, are called the three karmas. But strictly speaking, only agamya is a karma. The other two are the fruit of karmas. They're the fruit of our past karmas. Um, so where does freedom of will come in this? That is, Vasanas are inclinations. So we may be inclined to do a certain action, but we can use our better judgment. Supposing we are inclined to do some action that is not a good action. Supposing we, we feel inclined to speak some harsh word, or to, uh, some, uh, some words that will hurt someone. We may have that inclination to do so, but we can, we, we can restrain ourselves. No, I don't want to hurt. Why should I unnecessarily? This person may have done harm to me, but I don't want to do harm to them. So let me not say anything hurtful. So we restrain it. Like this, throughout our life, so many, as Bhagavan says, vasanas are constantly rising. Like, uh, in, they're rising in countless numbers like ocean waves. So constantly our mind is being pulled here, uh, being pulled here and there by the vasanas. But the free, where our freedom lies, it's up to us which vasanas we allow ourselves to be swayed by. So um, the, we may have an inclination to say some harsh words, but we also have an inclination not to say harsh words, not to hurt anyone. So we, choose, we have to choose which inclination to follow. So we are constantly selecting which inclinations to follow. And the more we follow any particular, we allow ourselves to be swayed by any particular inclination, the stronger that inclination becomes. So ultimately, whatever actions we do under the sway of our vasanas are actions we're doing in accordance with our freedom of will. 
Um, so that that is where the freedom of will comes in. It's the, the freedom either to, to be swayed or not swayed by any particular vasadam that may arise. And this freedom is absolutely key to the spiritual path, because if we had no freedom, we wouldn't be able to follow whatever type of spiritual sadhana you do. If you were, if you didn't have the freedom to choose to do that, it would be of no benefit. I mean, it'd be just something you're made to do. So that's not so. But what is the most beneficial spiritual sadhana we can do? By allowing ourselves, vasanas, Bhagavan classified vasanas into two kinds. Um, of course, there are many different ways in which vasanas can be classified, but the most important distinction is the one highlighted by Bhagavan. That is, the vast majority of our vasanas are what Bhagavan called vishaya vasanas. Vishaya means objects or phenomena. In other words, anything other than ourselves is a vishaya. So our inclination to seek happiness in things other than ourselves, anything other than ourselves, and when we seek happiness in by attending to those things and acting under the sway of those vasanas, those vasanas that, that prompt us to seek happiness in things other than ourselves, or what Bhagavan calls vishaya vasanas. As I say, the vast majority of vasanas are vishaya vasanas of one kind or another. Some are among those vishaya vasanas, some are maybe relatively good ones, some may be relatively bad, but they're all vishaya vasanas. Some may be relatively gross, some may be relatively subtle, but they're all vishaya vasanas. The other type of vasana is what Bhagavan called sat vasana. Sat vasana is the inclination just to be as we are. In other words, the inclination to hold on to our own being, I am. That is the love to turn within. So vasanas have no strength of their own. Vasanas derive their strength from us. So how are vasanas strengthened? The more we allow ourselves to be swayed by any particular vasana, the stronger that vasana becomes. For example, if I have an inclination to eat chocolate, the more I indulge in that inclination, the stronger that inclination will become, and the more difficult it will be for me to resist the inclination. But if instead of allowing myself to be swayed by that inclination, whenever that inclination to have some chocolate arises, because I know the chocolate is not good for me, or at least eating too much is not good for me, I restrain myself, I avoid. Therefore, the vasana becomes weaker because I'm not indulging it. So the more we refrain from being swayed by any particular vasana, the weaker that vasana becomes and the easier it becomes for us to refrain from being swayed by it. So what happens when we are practicing self-attentiveness? We are being swayed only by the sat vasana, the inclination to hold on to our own being. And because we're holding on to our own being, we're not allowing ourselves to be swayed by any other vasanas. So the, all the vishaya vasanas are weakened and the sat vasana is strengthened by our clinging to self-attentiveness. So this is, the, this is the correct use of our freedom. Using our freedom to do anything else is allowing ourselves to be swayed by some vishaya vasana or other. As I say, some vasanas may be relatively good. Others may be relatively bad, but it's all just relative. Ultimately, all vishaya vasanas are bad because all vishaya vasanas, even the best ones, are taking our attention away from ourselves. So 
by because we have this freedom, we should use this freedom wisely by clinging to self-attentiveness. Even when we're not clinging to self-attentiveness, we should continue to use our freedom wisely rather than being swayed by the bad vasana. It's better to be swayed by the good vasana. So um, that's why uh, if we are following this path of self-investigation, our mind is automatically being purified. And because the mind is purified, we we are swayed less and less by the the bad vasanas. So we generally become a better person to the extent to which we turn within, because by turning within, ego is subsiding, and thereby it's freeing itself from the hold of the, the worst vasanas. And so when we do act, we tend to act according to the better vishaya vasanas rather than the worst ones. But best not to, best just to cling to self-attentiveness. That is our aim. That is what we're striving towards. But because the vishaya vasanas are still there, we are constantly being buffeted here and there by our Vishaya Vasanas because we are still weak and we have invested so much strength in those that we've, in, we've, we've strengthened those Vishaya Vasanas so much, but it's now difficult for us to resist them. So we are constantly being swayed here and there by our Vishaya Vasanas. That's what Bhagavan is praying about in these verses of, of Akshramlai when he talks about the mind running outwards, when he talks about the mind wandering about the world. Um, he's he's referring to to why did the mind uh, roam about the world? Why did the mind run outwards? It's only under the vishayava, sway of its vishayavasanas. And in the um, but in the next verse, um, he, he the verse after the one we talked about today, the verse ten, he said sings, "Ain uh, in the urakum, ene pirariruka." Uh, that is, uh, why this sleep when others are dragging me? Uh, does this befit you? Does this uh, befit you? Does this is this becoming to you? So that means that when he says others are dragging me, who are those others? It's our Vishaya Vasanas. So in so many verses of Akshramala, you will find indirect references to Vishayavasan, because they are the enemies that we are up against. In in, uh, in Nana, Bhagavan uses the analogy of the enemies in the fortress. If you're besieging a fortress, and if the enemy inside the fortress, if they've got no food and water, they keep on having to come out to try and get supplies, food, water, and so on, in order to survive. So the Vasanas can can be gain their nourishment only by coming out and distracting our attention. So the, the Bhagavan said, so long as there are enemies within the fortress, they'll be constantly coming out. If one, uh, if one cuts them down as and when they come, that means if we don't allow ourselves to be swayed by those vasanas that rise from the heart, uh, from, from within ourselves, that means, they will they they will thereby cutting them down and eventually the fortress will uh will be captured by us so the fortress of our own heart will be captured only if we are constantly cutting down the vasanas as they arise cutting them down is a metaphorical way of saying not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. If we allow ourselves to be swayed by them, they're getting the nourishment we want because they, they are nourished by the attention we give them or the attention that we give to the vishayas that they prompt us to attend to. So 
we we this, uh, we had this freedom, but as Bhagavan said, whatever we are to experience in this lifetime, that is the fruit of our past actions, but have been allotted for us to experience in this lifetime. So whatever is to happen to us, whatever we are to experience, is entirely according to prarabdha, according to destiny. We have no freedom to change that. And in order for us to experience our destiny, certain actions of mind, speech, and body are required on our part. Those actions we are made to do by God. That's what Bhagavan uh, meant in the first sentence of the note he wrote for his mother when he said, uh, That means, according to the prarabdha of each one, he who is for that, meaning God or Guru, being there, there, implying in the heart, of, being in the heart of each one, Artavipan will make them dance, will make them act. So we will be made to do whatever actions of mind, speech, and body are necessary in order for us to experience our prarabdha. So why Bhagavan taught us that? We need not be concerned about our outward life because our outward life is already predetermined by prarabdha. So we can, if we want to, that is, though we are not free to change what we are to experience, we, that is what is predetermined is predetermined. It cannot be changed in any way. Though we're not free to change it, we're free to want to change it. I can want to, it may be my destiny to be live in poverty all my life, but that doesn't stop me wanting to be very rich. It doesn't stop me trying to be very rich. So I can be trying all sorts of um by honest means or foul means, whatever, I can be constantly trying to become rich, but because it's my destiny to be poor, however much I want to be rich, however much I try to be rich, I will remain poor. So we, we have that, but that obviously trying, trying for, to achieve anything in this world is a, a misuse of our freedom. How we should use the correct way to use our freedom is to turn within. If instead of turning within, we use our freedom to try and achieve this or that in our life, we are just creating fresh karma. So some people think, because Bhagavan has said, whatever happens in our life is according to destiny, people some people naively come to the conclusion, oh, therefore there's no free will. If everything is destined, therefore there's no free will. They don't understand the law of karma, but according to the law of karma as taught by Bhagavan, whatever our destiny is the fruit of a gamya that we've done in the past, and a gamya is actions that we've done in accordance with our free will. That is, the, 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 the actions we've done under the sway of our vasanas, and we are swayed by our vasanas because we allow ourselves to be swayed. So we have the freedom I have to do or not to do agamya. And but if we do the agamya, we are responsible for that. That is, we've done that agamya in accordance with our freedom of will. And the fruit of that will be experienced by us at some point in future, in some future life, as prarabdha. So um, Bhagavan taught that we have, we have what, what Bhagavan called it in Tamil was, he spoke about two types of freedom. We have Icha Swatantra, that's the freedom of will. That is, we have freedom to, to, to like or dislike or free, that we have the freedom of will. And that freedom of will also gives us 
a limited freedom of action that Bhagavan called Kriya Swatantra. So misusing our freedom of will, we, we do actions. So often Bhagavan, since there couldn't be freedom of action without freedom of will, Bhagavan often spoke about these together. He often referred to them collectively as Icha Kriya Swatantra. But they are two different freedoms. One is the freedom of will, the other is the freedom of action. Uh, because misusing our freedom of will, we misuse our freedom of action. One leads to the other. Um, so, uh, the, uh, uh, freedom of will and, dest and destiny are perfectly compatible. In fact, the, the destiny is the fruit of our misuse of our freedom of will in previous lives. So, there's no incompatibility between freedom of will and um and destiny. But this is, many people misunderstand this and they jump to the wrong conclusion. Oh, Bhagavan has said there's no free will. Bhagavan never said there's no free will. Bhagavan said all the, all spiritual teachings, all the sastras, all the teachings of gurus, it's all based on the fact that we have freedom of will. If we had no freedom of will, then there would be no need for any spiritual teaching because we, why, why should Bhagavan advise us to turn within if we don't have the freedom of uh, the term within why should any spiritual practice or religious uh, practice be taught why should we be taught to live a good moral virtuous life if we don't have the freedom to do so so freedom freedom of will is is it's anyone who tries to deny the freedom of will is actually a, a materialist because only materialists can deny the freedom of will um, if we understand, our, the truth is, what, what is our real nature? Our real nature is Brahman. What we actually are is Brahman. Brahman is infinite. Because it's infinite, it's infinitely free. Because there's nothing other than ourself, we have infinite freedom as Brahman. When we rise as ego, our freedom is limited because we've imposed limitations on ourselves, but we still remain free. Just like what is Brahman? Brahman is Sat, Chit, Ananda. It's pure being, pure awareness, and pure happiness. These are obscured when we rise as ego, but they never cease to exist. That is, we, we are always aware of our own existence as I am. That is Sat, Chit. And the Ananda, we experience, we experience pleasure and pain they are they are reflections of the infinite happiness that is our own real nature likewise our infinite freedom is experienced by us as limit the limited freedom of the individual the limited freedom of will and action so we are free to want whatever we want we are free to a certain extent to try for whatever we want, but we are not free to experience whatever we want, because what we are to experience is determined by prarabdha. I hope this explains that clearly enough. Next question is, you mentioned ego without form and adjuvance is the I am. Can you elaborate on this relationship between ego with and without form and the I am? Thank you. Bhagavan, in verse 25 of Uludhanapdu, Bhagavan describes ego as a formless phantom. But he also says, uh, 
Grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. So ego has no form of its own, but it cannot, it cannot rise without grasping some form as itself. So um, ego without form is pure awareness. So it's not ego at all. It's only when we grasp form that we become ego. So um, the, this ego is a very tricky thing. It is, as Bhagavan explained in verse 24 of Uludhanapadu, he says, Jada Urul Nanenadu, the insentient body does not say I. And when he says the insentient body, he's referring to all the five sheaths. He's not just referring to physical body, he's referring to all the five sheaths. And when he says does not say I, that's a metaphorical way of saying it's not aware of itself as I. Why? Because all these five sheaths are jada. They are not, they are non-aware. So the body is not aware of itself as I. Satchit, that is the pure being awareness, does not rise. But between these two, one thing, I, rises as the extent of a body. So because it rises, it's not satchit. Because it's aware of itself as I, it's not the body. So it's neither satchit nor is it the body, but it takes it it usurps the properties of both. Like satchit, it's aware of itself as I. Like the body, it 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 it's confined within limitations. So ego is neither this nor that. That is why Bhagavan goes on to say it is chitjada granti. If you've got two pieces of string and they're tangled entangled. The knot is neither one string nor the other. It is the entanglement of the two strings. If you separate the two strings, there's no knot at all. So ego has ego is is a wholly unreal entity, but uh, arises because of the conflation of um, of, of uh, satchit with a body. But that conflation occurs only in the view of ego, not in the view of Satchit. Satchit is ever unaffected. Though it is said chit granti, we, we could take, oh, chit is entangled. No, chit is not entangled. Chit seems to be entangled uh, in the view of ego. I, I am seems to be entangled with this body. We can't separate this I am from the body because this body seems to be I am. So, um, so ego in its essential nature, it is formless. But it, it, as for, in its formless nature, it is not ego. So it, is a, it, is, it, it has no existence independent of the form that it grasps. But it doesn't depend on any one, in, one form. That is, in one lifetime, it experiences one body as I. In another lifetime, it experiences another body as I. Not even, even within the same lifetime. Now, I experience this body as I. Tonight, when I go to sleep and I have a dream, it'll be some other body. So it's not the same body, but that body may be injured. When I wake up in the morning, the injury will be gone. So it's not the same body. So it's ego cannot uh, rise without grasping a body as I. But it's not dependent on any particular body. Somebody or other needs to grasp as I. So ego is, in its essential nature, it is formless, but it cannot rise or stand without grasping a form as itself. So if we talk about the formless ego, 
ego without form is pure awareness. So, but it, but ego as ego is not pure awareness. It's neither pure awareness nor is it the body. It's some spurious entity that rises between the two and completes the two together. So, um, this is what Bhagavan has revealed to us about the nature of ego. But um, this is that we need to understand this. But to really understand ego, we need to investigate what it is. If we investigate it, as he says in verse 25, Tedinal Otompidicum, if sought, it takes flight. That is, we seem to be ego only when we're looking at other things, when we're looking away from ourselves. If we look back at ourselves to see what is this ego, has anyone ever seen ego? Has anyone ever found ego? No, we can't find it. We, because we seem to be ego only when we're looking away from ourselves. When we look back at ourselves, what do we find? We just find the, the simple awareness I am, nothing more than that. And that simple awareness I am, that is pure awareness. I hope that adequately answers that question. Yes, thank you, Michael. That was, that was my question. Thank you. Right. Michael, uh, would it uh, be perhaps uh, helpful to simply say that grasping itself is a kind of self-grasping? It's an identification or self-identification. Uh, and, and in a sense, the emphasis really needs to be on that rather than the ego itself, because there is no ego without the grasping, uh, yes. without that identification. So it's really a kind of a, because it's an activity in a way, uh, which really arises, uh, you know, which, which then gives rise to this thing. And then, you know, through sort of self-attention, a certain kind of, yeah. of, of focus and so on, one is able to sort of one is able to stop grasping and uh, yes. and with that the ego vanishes and this and it is through this grasping that we lend a sense of uh, of gravity or density of existence to uh, these various forms and when that grasping isn't there that's why you know sort of the world in some sense is illusory or simply does not have any uh, meaning or yeah. uh, any kind of existence so would that yeah. kind of uh, be a reasonable yeah, yeah. Uh, um yes definitely that is from verse 25 of Uludanapadu, in which Bhagavan says, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. From that, we have to understand, grasping is the very nature of ego. Ego cannot exist without grasping form. And since ego itself is formless, any form it grasps is something other than itself. When we are self-attentive, we are trying to grasp ourselves, as you say. So we, but grasping anything other than ourselves is an activity. It's a rising, whereas grasping ourselves is a cessation of activity. It's a subsidence because what we are, what is there to grasp? When we grasp ourselves, it doesn't mean grasping the body. It means grasping the fundamental awareness I am. When we grasp that fundamental awareness I am, we subside and remain as that. So yes, it's, uh, we have to use the grasping nature of the mind to grasp ourselves. Um, and as you say, the things that we grasp, all the forms that we grasp, this body and this world, they have no existence independent of ego. As Bhagavan says in the next verse, verse 26, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. So just like the dreamer is seeing itself as the dream, ego is the dreamer, 
it is seeing itself as all these forms. So these, this body and world have no existence independent of ego. That as soon as we rise as ego, we project and grasp these things. That is, the projection is, is part of the process of grasping. Because we're grasping in what? We're grasping in our awareness. So we have to project in our awareness in order to grasp it. So it's all the same thing. So it's a very, very subtle, subtle process. This is the pro This is how um, shristi occurs by our rising as ego, and by grasping ourselves. That is how the samhara, the destruction, occurs. So ego is is um, is what is doing the the creation, the sustenance, and eventually by turning back to see who am I, it brings about the samhara, the destruction. Is that a clear answer? I think so. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Um, then uh, the next question is: Is doing giri pradakshina more than once in a day considered rajasik devotion? <laughs> it depends. If you're doing giri pradakshina in order to gain something then maybe you can say it's rajasic devotion. But if you're doing production because you just love Arunachala and you're doing it for the love of Arunachala, that is devotion. And devotion is never rajasic. Devotion means we are... True devotion is giving ourselves to God. So it is... It is rajas, uh, sattva, rajas, and tamas are only for ego. When we are surrendering ourselves, we are going beyond all the three gunas. I thought I'll just ask a question or two because at the moment yeah. we don't have any other questions, so okay. I'll take the opportunity. Um, so uh, I, would it be, I think it would be perhaps correct to say that um, all these different methods which are often used, apart from so self-inquiry and yeah. so on, they really do in a sense aim to focus the mind so that the, so that, so that the grasping uh, is sort of becomes limited to just one thing and then to, and then to nothing. Yes. So it really is attempting to do that. And for that reason, it would be beneficial, uh, you know, as a sort of a preliminary practice for many people and why they do in fact uh, sort of urge it until we get into self-investigation in the sense of simply being attentive, simply being just as you are without any kind of grasping. Yeah. Uh, I'm always well, kind of Bhagavan gives the analogy in the ninth paragraph of Nana of the elephant. The elephant's trunk is always moving this way and that way. So to stop it constantly grasping other things, it's given a chain. If it's given a chain to hold on to, it will hold the chain and it won't be grasping other things. So other practices are like that. It's like giving the chain to the uh, in the trunk of the elephant to stop it grasping other things. It's bringing the mind to a one, more one-pointed condition, and that more one-pointed condition is more favorable for self-investigation. But Bhagavan isn't recommending that we do these things. He's explaining the efficacy of these things, because the most effective way to make the mind one-pointed is to turn it back within. No, absolutely. Um, and... Uh... Some of these practices, I, um, I suppose people find them initially helpful to be able to simply uh, quieten the mind a bit and be able to turn yeah, within, I yes, guess, yes, yes. Yeah, the, the sort of thing. And yes. it, it also depends on what the mind is attracted to. 
Some people are attracted to all these paths because some people want something to do. What can I do? But this path of self-investigation, this is, this is, seems to be a doing, but it's actually a non-doing because by attending to anything other than ourselves is a movement of our attention away from ourselves towards something else. So that is a karma, that is a doing, a kriya. Whereas turning our attention back towards ourself brings about the subsidence of ego. So it is a, it is a cessation of doing. So depending on the, the, the pakpa, the spiritual maturity, people, different people are attracted to different paths. That's why so many different paths are there and there's to suit people at different levels of maturity. But once we've been attracted to this path of self-investigation and self-surrender, but Bhagavan has taught us, all these other practices, they lose their attraction for us because it, it seems so clear and obvious to us, but ultimately this is what we have to do. So why not, as Bhagavan said, this is what we have to do ultimately. Why not start now? Why put it off? It's sort of um, sort of the nitty gritty of the entire path is what we might call a grasping or identifying self identification or yeah. self grasping, and I don't mean sort of the real self, but yeah, yeah, I, um, and grasping itself being of the very nature of identifying with something as yeah. I, uh, and hence creating an ego in which the subject and the object are really inseparable because both have been created at the same time. Now. Um, the reason why it's so difficult to um, engage in the practice of, of, of sort of letting go is because of perhaps of some of the ways in which the grasping arises, I would think that desires, all our emotions, even things like fears and so on, or joy and so on. I mean, uh, um, there's hardly an activity which isn't... Uh, um, predicated on a grasping. I mean, there are these moments. There, you know. there, all activities are grasp, entail grasping. Grasping is the very nature of ego. And the nature of ego is to always grasp things other than itself. So when we are turning our attention back within, we are going against the, the natural flow. The natural flow of ego is outwards. So we are swimming against the current, so to speak. That's why this practice seems to be difficult. It is not actually difficult, but it seems to be difficult because it's against the very nature of the mind to hold on to itself. It, the very mind cannot survive without holding on to other things. So that's why it, it requires patient and persistent practice because the mind will be constantly going out. However many times we try to turn within, we will be constantly failing. We may hold on to self-attentiveness for a few moments, and again the attention will slip outwards. We have to again bring it back. So it's this repeated, constant uh, practice. This is the only way to overcome this. What always strikes me about this passage from Bhagwan is just how close it is to the Buddha. Uh, in fact, exactly the same thing, because there it is this thing about clinging to the five skandhas, the five aggregates, which are yeah. form, feeling, uh, yeah. willing, yeah. Uh, you know, thoughts yeah. and so on. Yeah. And this is, you know, uh, identifying. I mean, yeah. he, he doesn't call the, the reality the self, but that's because um, people tend to reify. If, if you name anything, they reify yeah. it rather yeah. than simply yeah. being in it. 
uh, but 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 this has always struck me. Uh, but I think no, I think this is extremely helpful. Uh, yeah. And now we have some questions, so I will. Uh, I I've also got a question. Someone wrote an email saying that he wasn't sure whether he would be able to come today. So could I answer his question? So anytime you 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 ask for questions. Yeah, maybe we'll just do the because then we have we have quite now because we've got two yeah. and then the third one. Yeah. Keep it in mind. So. Um, the first question now is, could Michael say a bit more about Satchitanand? There seems to be many interpretations of this. <laughs> um, there's actually very little to say because Sat is pure being, Chit is pure awareness, and Ananda is pure happiness. And these are not three different things. They're one and the same thing. That is, that which is Sat is itself Chit and is itself Ananda. So the, these are not three separate things. And as Bhagavan describes in verse 28 of Upadeshundiya, these the, the this one thing called Satchitananda is anadi. That means it is beginningless. It has no beginning. It is ananta. Ananta means endless or limitless. So it's endless in the sense, of, but it is. It's eternal. It never. It will never come to an end. It's endless, also in the sense that it is. Uh, it has no limit, no outer limit. So it's infinite. So ananta means infinite, um, and akanda. It's unbroken. So it's one infinite, indivisible whole. Um, it. That's really all that can be said about it, because our mind cannot. Our, our mind cannot. It, it is that which is beyond mental conception. It is these are words that are pointing to that which is beyond mental conception. But if you want a simple description of what is Satchitananda, what we are all familiar with is I am. That which is shining in our heart as I am, that is Satchitananda. That is the, the very first question that Shiva Prakashan Pillai asked Bhagavan was uh, Nana, who am I? And though it's in the, it, Shibhakashambalai later added more to it, the actual answer Bhagavan gave to that first question was, Arivainan, awareness alone is I. So then Shibhakashambalai asked, what is the nature of that awareness? Arivinsurupam uh, edu. And Bhagavan replied, Satchitananda. So that, that awareness that is shining in our heart as I, that is Satchitananda. That is what is called Satchitananda. So, what is Satchitananda? Tatvamasi, you are that. To put it in a nutshell. You means not you as a person, but the fundamental awareness I am. That is Satchitananda. That is Brahman. Last question I have here, Michael, is. Um... With daily practice of self-inquiry, these vishaya vasanas still keep uh, rising more and more. Do you have any more suggestions on practice to go <laughs> more deeply? Go on doing the same thing. As Bhagavan said, all that is inside has to come out. So don't expect this is going to continue. This is going to, and, and don't expect that this is going to come to an end. Until ego comes to an end, the nature of ego is to have vishaya vasanas. Very instructive here in Akshramlai. <clears throat> in this verse, the verse we talked about today, Bhagavan is praying to Aranacha, Enayaritu, destroying me. That is, he's wholly ready for 
his own destruction and he's ready to give himself entirely to our natural. The very next verse, he says, why this sleep when others are dragging me? Those others that he's referring to are obviously the Bashaya Vasanas. So what that in, even up to the last minute when we are ready to surrender ourselves completely, we still have to, until we are destroyed, the Bashaya Vasanas will be there. Because it is the very nature of ego to have Bashaya Vasanas. Because as Bhagavan says, ego comes into existence, it stands and it flourishes by grasping things. So the inclination to grasp things other than itself are what are called Vishaya Vasanas. So they will always be there. And the more we try to go within, the more the, 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 we, we, are, we are churning. It's sometimes this is what is sometimes called the churning of the nadis. That means we are stirring up everything that's inside has to come out. And sometimes when people complain to Bhagavan, oh, Bhagavan, when I try to meditate, just so many thoughts about other things come. Bhagavan says, yes, of course, everything that's in, all the dirt that's inside has to come out. How can you clean it out if it doesn't come out? So we, the, the bastards will be rising up to the end. That's why this, this practice of self-investigation, it will never be plain sailing. It, we, we, we have to be... Uh, no matter how strongly the Vasanas are rising, we need to hold fast to self-attentiveness and thereby not allow ourselves to be swayed by them. But so long as we're holding on to self-attentiveness, the Vasanas will be constantly rising, trying to draw our attention away from ourselves. Because the, the Vasanas are ego's inclinations. And ego, why ego is so strongly inclined to cling to other things? Because it depends upon clinging to other things for its very survival. So even when, when we are up to the last minute, when we surrender ourselves completely and allow ourselves to be destroyed by him, we will be, the share of asanas will be constantly trying to drag us outwards. So what is the way? There's only one way. Constant, no matter how many times the Bishaya Vasanas distract, uh, draws our attention outward, we need to turn our attention with, back within. As Bhagavan explains it very, very clearly in the sixth paragraph of, of Nana. What he says there is, Pira enangal erindal avatre purti panavatku etneyamal ave yaraku undayena that means if other thoughts rise uh, without trying to complete them, in other words, without following those thoughts, uh, it is necessary to investigate to whom they have arisen. However many thoughts arise, so what? Jagratei, vigilantly, Obvoru enum kalambum day, vigilantly, as and when each thought arises, idu yaraku undaitru endru bicharital enikendru tondrum. As and when each thought arises, uh, if one investigates to whom has this arisen, it will be clear to me. Nana indru vicharital manam tan pirapiditiku tirumbi vidum. If one in investigates, who am I? 
That means if one, in, instead of allowing the tension to go outwards, if we hold on to that self-attentiveness, uh, the mind will return to its birthplace. Its birthplace meaning the source from which it rose. In other words, our own, our own being, our own real nature. Erunda enamum adangi vidum. The thought which rose will subside. Why? Because the thoughts can rise only if we attend to them. If we hold on to self-attentiveness, the thoughts which had risen will subside. And then he says, Ipidi paraka paraka tan manataku tam pirapiditil tangi nikkam shakti adikari kindradu. That means by practicing and practicing in this manner, um, to the mind, the power to remain uh, established in its birthplace uh, will increase. So the, how to gain more and more, how to gain the strength to hold on to self-attentiveness, to remain in, in our own uh, source, in our own being, it's only by persistent practice. So however many thoughts arise, so what? As and when they arise, we need to turn to... Every thought that rises should remind us of our own being. To whom has it risen? We are not here to fight with the thoughts. Let the thoughts come. As Bhagavan says, what does it matter how many thoughts come? Take every thought that rises as a reminder. But you couldn't be aware of both thoughts if you were not present. So instead of attending to the thought, attend to yourself, the one to whom the thoughts appear. Turn your attention back to, away from the, the thoughts or objects. Turn your attention back towards the subject, the first thought I. And by, by the more we attend to this uh, fundamental awareness I, the more the mind will thereby subside back into its source. And thereby, by practicing, practicing in this way, we gain, uh, that's how we gain the strength to uh, hold on to self-attentiveness more and more. That doesn't mean it's going to become easy because the more we hold on to self-attentiveness, the more we are churning out the vasanas. So the more they'll continue rising. But we have to continue this practice until finally ego itself is destroyed. Because we cannot, we can weaken the vishaya vasanas by this practice. We cannot destroy them without destroying ego. But fortunately for us, the same practice by which we weaken the Vishaya Vasanas is itself a practice by which we will eventually destroy ego. So other than self-attentiveness, no, nothing else is needed. And nothing else is going to help us. Ultimately, this is the only way. I hope that's a clear enough answer. Bhagavan has said this is the direct path. So can you... Is there a shortcut to the direct path? No, there cannot be, because the direct path is itself the shortest route. The, the, the shortest uh, route between two points is a straight line. So this is the straight path back towards ourselves. So there, there's no shortcut. We, Bhagavan sometimes said, um, uh, subjugation of the mind is not our birthright. We have to work at it. We have to work it. It means we've got to persistently try to hold on to self-attentiveness. And however many times our attention goes outwards, it doesn't matter. We've got to bring it back towards ourselves. Thank you, Michael. Thank right. you. It definitely helps. Right. Sometimes it feels um, Bhagavan, sees, Bhagavan is testing us to, he's, he's just um, testing our patience and say, 
you just keep on saying the hey you try these things and uh, but he is not giving you grace uh, but it feels like um, we are always battling but sometimes we feel that uh, we are i'm giving up saying that hey no matter how i am doing it this is coming up so let's uh, let's uh, surrender to the mind instead of uh, the self yeah, yeah. but it, but, but it <laughs> but but yeah i i'm i'm not giving up bhagwan is always giving a grace yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. bhagwan's grace is never lacking <laughs> what is lacking is our grace we are not we he's been so gracious to us shining in our heart as i we are being so ungracious to him instead of lovingly attending to him in our heart we are attending to this world we are fascinated <laughs> by all this these uh, these uh, like a child being um being uh, enchanted by so many colorful toys we are enchanted by this world and we are ignoring him so the grace that is required is our grace his grace is abundant his grace is infinite our grace is required we need to make we need to persevere in making this effort to turn within and as bhagwan says it doesn't matter how many times you fail just keep on trying so long as we're trying we're moving in the right direction even a moment of self attentiveness is a big step in the right direction so we should treasure every single moment of self attentiveness we shouldn't lament all the moments that we're not attending to ourselves we should treasure the moments when we do attend to ourselves when we are attending it all this other things in the mind what what happens in the regular world even the normal things what what we think it becomes so irrelevant but yes. we think that what is what is that we are here for uh, what all all talking even the regular things what we are doing what what are working and all the relationships everything becomes like a meaningless why are we here we just get, get to the question about like what's the point of coming here doing all this things which is meaningless kind of like what mind is doing it yes and absolutely. again going back to the source it kind of like becomes to the kind of um, a questionable void and and it doesn't give any sense of living in this kind of um, meaningless maya kind of thing yes yes absolutely absolutely <laughs> thank you so much uh, michael I- Attending, attending to anything other than ourselves is samsara. Attending <laughs> to ourselves is liberation. <laughs> Thank you. Right. <laughs> oh, would you like to uh, to address the question that was sent to you? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, what uh, the question I was asked is: Can you make it clear what the mind is? and where is the distinction between mind and ego is um i have an idea but just want to check in with what you say so there are no misconceptions furthermore is the mind of any, of any us if so how does the self when realized utilize the faculties of the mind if and when required so it's quite a few questions um let us start with the second one what is the distinction between mind and ego the term mind is used in many different senses in different contexts bhagavan often used the mind as a the term mind as a synonym for ego uh 
But ego is a good term because it, 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 ego is distinguished from all the other thoughts. That is, in its broadest sense, the mind means the totality of all thoughts. But we can divide all thoughts into two groups. There's one thought, ego, the first thought I, that is uh, the subject. That is what is aware of all other thoughts. All other thoughts are objects. So the only thought that is endowed with awareness is the first thought I, namely ego. So ego is the subject, all other thoughts are the object. The objects are constantly changing. The subject remains the same. So long as there is mind, ego remains the same ego. So there's one ego and many other thoughts. Um, and all, but though ego is itself a thought, which is why Bhagavan often described it as the thought called I, or the I thought, it is a thought unlike all other thoughts, because all other thoughts are jada, that is, they have no awareness of their own. Ego is the only thought that is endowed with awareness. Ego is chit jada granti. It is the not formed by the entanglement of chit and jada. So ego is what is called Chittabhasa. Chittabhasa, it's usually translated as the reflection of awareness. But a deeper meaning, a more fundamental meaning of Chittabhasa is a likeness or a semblance of awareness. The reason a basa, a secondary meaning of a basa is a reflection, if you look in a mirror, what you see in the mirror is not yourself. It's only a reflection of yourself or it's not your face, it's a reflection of your face. Uh, so uh, it, it's a likeness of your face. So a, a reflection is a likeness, but the, the fundamental meaning of a basa is a likeness or a semblance. So ego is called chidabasa because it is real awareness is only pure awareness. Pure awareness is not aware of anything other than itself, because pure awareness is is... Uh, it is pure because it's not aware of anything else, and that is real awareness because it's not aware of any. It alone is real. So, knowing anything other than itself would be knowing what is unreal. But real awareness cannot know what is unreal. So, knowing things other than ourselves is the nature of ego. So, when we rise as ego, we're aware of all these other things. These other things don't actually exist. They merely seem to exist. So being aware of what doesn't actually exist, but merely seems to exist, is not real awareness. Real awareness is being aware only I am, nothing other than I am, because I am alone is real. So being aware of other things is only a likeness of awareness. That is why ego is called Chidabhasa. Um, so what the mind essentially is, is ego. This is what Bhagavan teaches us in verse 18 of Upadesha India. He begins by saying, Enmengale manam, that's thoughts alone of the mind. Um, that there he's, 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 he's acknowledging that the term mind is often used as, a, to, as a, a name for the totality of all thoughts. But then he says in the next quent, uh, sentence, Yavinum nanenum enname mulamam. Yavinum means uh, uh, of all or among all uh, those thoughts, 
The thought called I alone is the root. Why is it the root? Because it is the subject, all other thoughts are the objects. Objects depend upon the subject. Without a subject, there cannot be any objects. That is, objects are things known by the subject. So without a subject, there cannot be anything known by it. So the, the, the root of all thoughts is this first thought I, namely ego. Um, and therefore, Bhagavan concludes that verse, uh, that means uh, what is called the mind is only I. What he means by only I here, it's only ego, the first thought I. Um, so what the mind essentially is, is only this thought I, because other thoughts are com constantly coming and going. But the one thought that is constant, so throughout waking and dream, the one constant thought is this first thought I, namely ego. So that's what the mind essentially is. Um, but we, when, we, when the term mind is used, we have to understand from the context the sense in which it's being used. If, if, when it is said, um, but, but, but thoughts of the mind, there the mind is being used in a more general sense. Many people who don't read this verse 18 of Upadeshundiya carefully, they very superficially come to the conclusion, oh, Bhagavan has said the ego is a bundle of thoughts. No, ego is not a bundle of thoughts. Ego is the first thought, but is the root of all the bundle of thoughts. So Bhagavan never said ego is a bundle of thoughts. Ego is just one thought. All other thoughts are a bundle, but, and they exist only in the view of ego. Bhagavan also says um, in, um, in the, the fifth paragraph, he also talks, the fifth paragraph in Nana, he also talks about this. He says, um, of all the thoughts that appear or arise in the mind, the thought called I alone is the first thought. Only after this arises do other thoughts rise. Only after the first person appears do second and third persons appear. Without the first person, second and third persons do not exist. Here the first person means ego, the first thought I, the subject. Second and third persons is all other thoughts, all objects. So without only after the subject appears, do objects appear? Because the objects cannot appear without a subject. Because to whom do they appear? They appear only to, to, um, to the subject, to the first thought I. So what the mind essentially is, is just this first thought I. Mind is also used in other contexts, in, in other sense. For example, sometimes it, uh, they speak about the antakarana, the inner instrument. And the inner instrument is said to have four functions. That is manam, buddhi, chittam, and ahankaram. Manam in this context, mind in this context, means the grosser functions of the mind, the perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, emotions, and so on, all these gross aspects of the mind. Subtler than that is the intellect, um, the, the, the judging and discriminating and discerning aspect of the mind. Uh, subtler than that is the will that drives all this, and subtler than the will is ego. So uh, these are the, this, this description of the antakarana consisting of these parts is uh, talking about different levels of uh, subtlety. Um, 
But the subtlest of all is ego. And ego is that which takes all the other three, the mind, intellect, and will, as itself. I am thinking, I am seeing, I am hearing. Those are, those are the functions of the mind. Uh, I am judging, I'm discriminating, I'm um, distinguishing what is real from what is unreal. That is the that is mind identifying, ego identifying itself with intellect. And I like this, I don't like that. This is mind identifying itself with the will. So the function of ego is to take all these three as itself. So we need... From these examples, you can see the term mind is used in a different sense in different contexts. So when we, when the term mind is used, we need to understand from the context the sense in which it is being used. For example, in the fourth paragraph, Bhagavan says, uh, before paragraph in Nana, that is, Bhagavan begins by saying, what is called mind is an adiseya shakti, an extraordinary power that exists in Atmasarupa. It makes all thoughts appear. So when he says it makes all thoughts appear, what is, he re what is it that makes all thoughts appear? It is ego. So here what he's referring to as mind is ego. Um, um, and um, in the fifth paragraph, he begins, uh, uh, what uh in the day hatil nan endru kalamba vadu eduvo akte manamam that means whatever it is but rises in this body as i that alone is the mind so here again he's referring to the mind as i so we need to understand from each time we come across the word mind we need to understand from the context the sense in which the term is being used um and then you say, but the later questions aren't very clear. Furthermore, is the mind of any of us? That is, mind in the sense of ego, that is what we are now, so long as we're talking and seeing and hearing and tasting and experiencing ourselves as I am this person, we are the mind in the sense of ego. If so, how? And then you, you, you ask, does the self, when realized, utilize the faculties of the mind, if and when required? It may seem to do so, but not. that is not the case. That is what you call the self is our real nature. When we know our real nature, in other words, when we know ourself as we actually are, mind is thereby destroyed. Because what is mind? Mind is ego, and ego is nothing but the false awareness I am this person. So long as we take ourselves to be a certain person, we are not self-realized. When we know ourselves as we actually are, we, we, the, the false awareness, I am this person, I am this body, is destroyed. And th that is, the mind is destroyed. So what is called realization of the self is nothing but manonasa, eradication of ego. So there's no mind remaining um, to, to be used Oh, when we know ourselves as we actually are, knowing ourselves as we actually are is a state of pure being. We, there's nothing to be done in that state. Um, so the mind is is used only for knowing the world. What is using the mind to know the world is only ego. So, um, but in the view of because we are still in ignorance, we see someone like Bhagavan who is who who has actually lost himself completely and is 
just nothing but our own real nature. We see him as a person separate from ourselves. He seems to have a body and a mind. He answers our questions and everything. So uh, for those who lack subtle understanding, we can say, yes, the self is using the, the mind and the body for its own purposes. But that is just our ignorance. Bhagavan is not that body or mind. He is that which is shining in our heart as I. Bhagavan does not do anything. His nature is just being. But the actions of that mind, speech, and body are driven by divine grace for our own benefit in order to tell us to turn back within. But Bhagavan himself, adds, but what you call the self means our real nature, means Brahman. Brahman doesn't do anything. Brahman, The nature of Brahman is not doing but just being. That is what we actually are. So I hope this um, answers all these questions adequately. There is one more question, Michael. Yes. Um, it, says, um, it says that mind is also used in the sense of attention, right? Yes, yes. That's another, another sense in which, like Bhagavan says, where he defines what is self-investigation. He in, in the 16th paragraph of Nana, he says, um, the name Atmavichara refers only to the practice of, well, he doesn't actually say practice, it implied that the practice of always keeping the mind fixed in oneself. This is actually very close to what Krishna says in the Gita. In verse 25 of chapter 6 of the Gita, Krishna says, Atma samstam mana kritva na kinchitabi chintayet. That means fix the mind in yourself. Do not think of anything else whatsoever. Um, fixing the mind, that means fixing the attention. And we, we use the, the term mind like that. In, in English also we use the term mind. We can say uh, his mind is not on the subject or his mind has gone somewhere else. That means the attention has gone somewhere else or his mind's wholly absorbed in his book. Uh, so um, we use mind in the sense of attention also. So we have to, in all languages, words are used in many different senses, and we need to understand from the context the sense in which the, um, the word is, the t uh, each term is used. So, yes, that's a very good example of another use of the term mind. Was there any further question on that, or was that just? Um, I think that was it, but there is yes. another question uh, okay. from uh, from Thiru Sampat. Mm. Yeah, Namaskar, Michael. Namaskar. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, as per prarabdha, everything is predetermined, right? So, yes. whatever we are supposed to experience, it's all mm. uh, determined. So, say mm. for example, if uh, I am supposed to eat some uh, not sattvic food. Uh, as part of my prarabdha, um, um, I, I will be eating that. I'll be made to eat that. But my question is, like you have mentioned that uh, we are not bound by our vasanas. For example, if I have a likeness to eat uh, something which is not sattvic, mm -hmm. I can always turn back to myself and say, mm -hmm. like, who is uh, getting this feeling? And yes. I can just uh, focus on myself. In yes. that way, avoid eating that food. So yes. is it like I am uh, I am able to change the prarabdha or like how, how uh, it looks like it's contradicting this? Yeah. It, yes, but they, it's, it's better not to try and analyze these things too much because 
that is where two forces were the driving um, mind. One is God is in accordance with God's will. That is, God is making us do whatever actions are necessary in order for us to experience our prarabdha. At the same time, we are we, we so the three instruments of action are mind, speech, and body. These three instruments are used by God, but only to the extent that it is necessary for our prarabdha to unfold. But we are also using these um these instruments to act in accordance with our basanas. So when it comes down to actions, people often ask, is this action, is this according to prarabdha or according to free will? We cannot easily distinguish. Supposing, just to take an example, supposing it's your destiny to become a doctor. In order to become a doctor, you have to study hard, you have to pass the exams, uh, and so on. So since it's your destiny to be a doctor, you will be driven to do those actions that are necessary in order to become a doctor. So you'll be driven to study hard and to, um, to uh, uh, take care, to write your exams well and everything. Those may be driven by prarabdha because it's your destiny to be a doctor. But just because it's just because those actions are driven by prarabdha does not mean that it's not driven by your free will. Because most people who become doctors, they want to become doctors. Either because they think of being a doctor is a very noble profession, I can help people if I become if I'm a doctor, or they may think, or oh, if I'm a doctor, then I'll earn a lot of money. Or they may think, oh, doctors are a prestigious profession, I'll have social prestige. So there may be so many reasons why they want to become a doctor, but most people who become doctors, they want to become doctors. So the same actions that are being driven by prarabdha, or not actually driven by prarabdha, driven by God in accordance with the prarabdha, are also being driven by the the likes and dislikes of the person. So we cannot easily distinguish which action or to what extent any action is driven by prarabdha and to what extent it's driven by uh, freedom of will. And it's not useful to do so. That is, always with these things, we have to understand what is the purpose of the teaching. So when Bhagavan has taught us that everything that we are to experience is predetermined, the reason he taught us this is so that we should not concern ourselves about our outward life. Whatever is to be experienced is to be experienced. Whatever is not to be experienced is not to be experienced. We cannot change it, an iota. So we should not concern ourselves with that. That is the purpose. So if instead of understanding that the purpose, if we constantly and uh, asking, is this prarabdha, is this agamya, how do I know which action, whether this action is agamya or prarabdha, we are, we are missing the point. The point is, we shouldn't be concerned about anything that we experience. Whatever is to be experienced will be experienced. We do have to be concerned about our actions, but in order to uh, act in an appropriate manner, we have to we have to curb the rising of the vasanas at the very as Bhagavan said there in that passage I quoted earlier from um, the sixth paragraph of Nana. He says um, he says jagratei obvoru ennamum kalambum pode. That means at the very moment that each thought rises. 
we should vigilantly investigate to whom it rises. And he says a similar thing in the 11th paragraph. He says, um, uh, uh, as long as the share of Vasanas exist in the mind, so long is the investigation who am I necessary. As and when thoughts appear, then and there it is necessary to annihilate them all by vicharana in the very place from which they rise. So here he's he's emphasizing, uh, he's, he's putting a double emphasis. First he says, Ninevugal tondra tondra. That means, uh, when, as and when thoughts arise, apode kapode, then and there, at that very moment, it's necessary to destroy them all in the very place from which they rise. That means as soon as the vasana begins to rise in the form of a thought, we should crush it by holding on to self-attentiveness. That is, if we allow the, the vasana to grow into a thought, the thought will give rise to a, a, a like or a desire. Oh, it'd be nice to have this non-sattvic food. And if we allow, if we allow the, the mind to continue going in that direction, the, then the, that liking for, for that particular food will grow into a strong desire and eventually will, it'll lead to reaction. So we need to be trying to cu curb these things in the very source from which they arise. Regarding the example you said about eating non-sattvic food, Those actions which we are made to do in accordance with prarabdha, we will be made to do. We have no, we have no, we cannot avoid doing those actions. But we cannot know which actions are actions we're being made to do in accordance with destiny and which actions we are actions um, we are being made to do uh, in, uh, under the sway of our vasanas. So we have a, we, we should, whenever, Supposing you, you're presented with some uh, non-sattvic food, supposing someone gives you some non-vegetarian food, and you have a liking for that, just suppose, um, if you, uh, if you, you shouldn't think, oh, maybe it's my destiny to eat this, so I'll eat it. How can you know it's your destiny? You should try to avoid eating it because you know it's not sattvic. It's against Bhagavan's principle. Bhagavan recommended only vegetarian food. Um, so we don't want to go against Bhagavan's principles. So we try to avoid it. If it's our destiny to eat it, maybe we'll be given some food and we don't know that it's, uh, it's got some, maybe it's some soup we're given and it happens to have some animal stock in it or something. We don't know. It's, it's very, sometimes it's, we, we can innocently eat something not knowing that it is not vegan um, or not vegetarian. So that, that is maybe according to destiny. But normally, we, it seems to us that we have a choice. If we are offered something, either we can eat it or we can not eat it. So if it's non-vegetarian, we should avoid eating it. Um, if it is our destiny to eat it, even if we try to avoid eating it, somehow we'll eat it. But uh, so we should, we should, all the actions we should do, we do, we should act on the assumption that whatever we do is our agamya. If it is the prarabdha, we won't be able to avoid it. But if it is not prarabdha, we will be able to avoid it. 
So we should try to avoid doing any action that is not good. Otherwise, you can think, okay, I don't like this person. I'm going to murder them. It's, maybe it's my prarabdha to murder, so I shouldn't feel guilty about it. It becomes ridiculous. We have to be sensible in these things. So we we try our best to act in a moral, righteous way, to act with due consideration for all other jivas. We try to follow the principle of ahimsa, not causing harm to any living being. That we try and do. If it's our destiny, supposing we are, we are always, supposing you're driving a car, you're a very careful driver because you don't want to cause an accident. But one day, something may happen and you may cause an accident. You didn't intend to cause that accident, but it happened. Maybe if a car skidded or something, you didn't want to wear the road was icy or wet or something, and so the car skidded and maybe you kill someone or something. Obviously, you don't want to do that, but it's your destiny to do it. That you can say, okay, it was my destiny, but we shouldn't willfully do actions and try to excuse ourselves for doing it, saying it was destiny. If you're driving carelessly, then you are to blame for any accidents that occur. So we, we need to be sensible in our application of these teachings. And we also need to understand we, when Bhagavan gives us any teaching, Bhagavan didn't come here to teach us about the law of karma. That's not our aim. Our aim is to know ourselves. But why, why then did he teach us the law of karma? Because if we understand this correctly, this will be a help to us in following this path. So we should understand the purpose of the teaching, and we should understand how to apply these things properly. So if we think, oh, I can eat non-vegetarian food because it's my destiny. I'm going to be, um, it's my, my destiny to eat non-vegetarian food, so I need not feel guilty about it. I can eat whatever I like. Uh, that itself shows. I can eat whatever I like. That shows the will is there. We have a liking for it. So uh, we, we shouldn't fool ourselves. We should be, this is why, what is the first qualification for following the spiritual path, according to all the Upanishads and all the Advaitic texts? The four things they say, it starts off with Viveka. It says, Nitya Nitya Vastu Viveka. That is dis distinguishing the real from the, the eternal from the ephemeral. But that, that we, we can extend that further. Basically, Viveka is absolutely essential on this path. Viveka in all senses. Um, so it begins with Viveka, then Vairagya. If we have Viveka, we will know eating non-sattvic food is not good for us. And it, if it's, if it's non-vegetarian food, it's causing harm to some, some other living being. So it's, uh, it's, in, it's unethical and it's harmful. So we should avoid it. That, that is the Viveka. Then, therefore, we should have Vairagya. We shouldn't, we should avoid that food. So, these are the basic requirements. We may not have perfect Viveka, we may not have perfect Vairagya, but unless we have a certain degree of Viveka and Vairagya, we cannot even begin to start on this path. So, we, we need to, when we read Bhagavan's teachings, we need to think deeply about it. We need to understand what is the purpose of this teaching? Why did Bhagavan teach us this? What did he expect us to understand from this? How did he expect us to apply this in practice?
All these things. This is why mere sravana is not sufficient. Manana is all important because only by manana can we truly understand it. But even manana is inadequate because we cannot understand these things deeply without nidityasana. Nidityasana means the actual practice of turning our attention within. Because when we turn our attention within, we are turning our attention back towards I am, which is the source. That, that which is the, 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 the original light that illumines the mind but enables us to know everything else. So this is the original light. So by attending to I am, we are bathing in the source of all light. We are thereby clarifying the mind, purifying the mind. So the deeper we go in the practice, the more, the deeper our sravana and manana will be. That's why we can be studying um, Bhagavan's Text like this Akshram, like Uladu Napadu, Nana Upadeshundia. I've, for example, been studying these since um, for some 46 years now, but I'm still learning from them. The texts are very simple, but we, we, we understand more and more depth in them the deeper we go in the practice. So, we understanding Bhagavan's teachings are very simple but they're also very deep and very subtle. So the understanding that we have at first will be a relatively superficial understanding. Our, with with, uh, with uh, further uh, um, manana and nidityasana, that is with thinking deeply about his teachings and putting them into practice, we, our understanding grows deeper and deeper and deeper. So it's very we we shouldn't hastily jump to conclusions or jump to superficial conclusions. If anything seems to be not if any conclusion we come to, if it seems to be not right, then we have to suspect. Have we have we understood what Bhagavan meant here? Bhagavan does, when Bhagavan says everything is according to Prarabdha, he's not justifying. But we can go out and. Um, rob the banks or commit murders or do all sorts of atrocities. He's not even justifying that we can eat non-satvic food. Obviously, we have to behave in an appropriate manner. If it's our destiny, then okay, that's out of our hands. But let's assume it's not our destiny until it actually happens. Does that, is that an adequate answer to your question? Is that clear enough? Yes, yes, Michael. Thank you so much. It's really clear now. Yes. There's a further question. If we constantly eat non-sattvic food, what are the consequences in a future life and how does it affect our future sadhana in that life? Basically, I'm asking how our karmic mistakes play out in future lives. Well, if you eat non-sattvic food, as Bhagavan says, the, the, the benefit of, the, from a spiritual perspective, the benefit of eating sattvic food, it increases the sattvic nature of the mind the sattva guna of the mind, and that will be an aid uh, in the practice of self-investigation. Um, as far as the, the there's, there's non-sattvic food and non-sattvic food, because, I mean, eating, um, you can, just because the food is vegetarian doesn't mean it's necessarily sattvic. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the mass-produced junk foods are, um, are uh, maybe vegetarian, 
but they're still not satisfied because of the way they're manufactured and the, the amount of sugar and salt and all these other things they have in them. So what is satisfied food? We have to find out from our own experience. We have to, we have to observe what effect different foods have on our mind. But there are some foods that are definitely non-satisfied, like anything that contains meat or eggs or fish or anything, that is absolute no-no according to Bhagavan, because that is definitely that is um that those foods are produced causing harm to living creatures. And though this didn't apply in Bhagavan's days, because those were different times, nowadays 99.9999% of the milk that is produced in this world is produced on an industrial scale. And the, the dairy industry and meat industries are very, very closely um, interconnected. And even in the dairy industry, there's so much cruelty. Calves are separated from the mother after just two, three days. Male calves are shot and sent for slaughter or sent for slaughter. <clears throat> and the, the milking cows, so long as they're producing the optimum amount of milk, they're kept as milking cows. As soon as their milk production begins to decrease, they're no longer economical um, to keep them. They're sent off for slaughter. So in the modern day world, even milk is not satvic. Um, though it used to be in the past, if cows were treated properly and were taken proper care of, and the milk was taken from, the, according to the, to the ancient scriptures, First, the calf should be allowed to drink all the milk it wants. And then if there's a surplus, then you can take it. But that's not what pe people, most people do nowadays. Even people who keep cows, they first milk the cow and keep a little bit for the calf. Um, so it, the way milk is produced nowadays makes even milk non-satvic. So non-satvic, why? Because it causes, it's produced in such a way that it's causing harm to those animals. So we, um, any food that is produced in a way that causes harm is non-satvic. If you indulge in such foods, then you that is that is bad karma and the fruits of those karmas you will have to experience sooner or later whenever god uh, allots those fruit for you to experience exactly how you will experience it that's not our department that is as as bhagavan says um um in the very first verse of upadeshundia um karmam payandaro kartanadanayal karma giving fruit is by the ordainment of God. So when you do an action, well, it's out of your hands. It's like if you shoot an arrow from a bow, so long as the arrow is still in the bow, so until you shoot it, you can aim it in a certain direction. Once you've shot it, it's out of your hands. If you suddenly see the place where you've shot it, there's a person standing there, you can't stop the arrow. It's going to hit that person. Likewise, with actions. Once we do an action, it's out of our hands. The fruit is in the hands of God. It is God who decides what fruit is to be, when, where, and how. The fruit of each action is to be experienced, is decided entirely by God. So we need not, we need not concern ourselves about that. We know we know the general principle. If you do good action, you get good fruit. If you do bad action, you get bad fruit. Very simple. That's all we need to know. 
but we shouldn't be doing good actions just because we want to get uh, experience good fruit. We should do good actions because it is good to do. Otherwise, if we're doing, I I do uh, charity because I think if I do a lot of charity, then I'll go to heaven. That is not, that is kamyata. That is just, you're, you're not really doing it for the sake of the person you're helping. You're doing it because you want the punya. So if we're on the spiritual path, we shouldn't be acting with, in such a kamyata, with such a kamya motive. We should be active, we should be doing good action because it is good for no other reason. Not for because we want to attain some good fruit, but we do the right thing because it's the right thing for no other reason than that. Well, Michael, I think one point one could make is that certain food actually irritates the mind yes. and we'll call it disturbance, which is different from the karmic results. Yes. yes. Milk. That may not disturb the mind. Yes. But it produces a different result. Exactly. Like garlic, for example, irritates the mind and will not allow it to remain at its source, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that's why I said when we talk about non-sattvic food, in what way is it non-sattvic? The, the karmic consequences of uh, if, you're, if it's, if it's uh, causing harm, then there are karmic consequences. If it's just, uh, if the uh, effect is just the effect that the food has on your mind, then you experience it then and there. If you, if you eat, um, if you eat food that will excite passions, for example, you have to suffer the consequences of having those passions. That is why we, why Bhagavan emphasized that by eating the sattvic food, it will, it's conducive to the, it will, will the, the sattvic guna of the mind will increase, and um, that will help in self-investigation. If, on the other hand, obviously, if you eat rajasic food, the rajasic guna of the mind will increase, and you have to suffer the, the rajasic state of mind. Or if it's tamasic food, you'll have to suffer a tamasic state of mind. If we're on the spiritual path, the type of mind we like to have is a sattvic mind. Sattvic means, sattva literally means beingness. Sat is being, twa is ness, beingness. So the type of food that is conducive to a calm, clear, peaceful state of mind, that is sattvic food. And we eat the sattvic food for that. I mean, the, the, the reason we eat food that is sattvic is to keep the mind in a sattvic condition. The reason we avoid non-vegetarian food is because to avoid doing harm. But two happen to coincide. Because the the, the non-vegetarian food is not sattvic; it is either tamasic or rajasic. So yes, what you say, Chris, is ab absolutely. It's very important if we want to have a a calm and peaceful mind, a mind that is conducive to turning within. Eating sattvic food is a great help. <laughs>